This is Old News, a podcast where we take the Old Testament and we apply it to youth ministry. Welcome. Open your Bibles. Hello and welcome back to Old News. I'm Tom Elms. I'm really excited to be with you today as we uh, move out of prophetic literature and start looking at a, a text that's slightly different. Uh, first, I just want to say I'm really grateful uh, for all the support uh, that we've received podcasting so far. It's been really great uh, from the different things I've heard from people and different things you've had to say. So thanks for that. And I'd always appreciate more feedback if you feel like sending it my way. Uh, today, I'm here with Brett Middleton, uh, someone who's a good friend of mine, someone who's really influenced the way in which I think uh, about youth ministry. Welcome, Brett. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Brett, uh, who are you? Yeah, I'm a minister at St. Luke's Anglican Church in Miranda. Uh, been in youth ministry land for a while, although not there anymore. Um, yes, yeah, so I was youth minister here at St. Luke's for eight years, um, kind of 20 years in youth leadership, if I tally it all up though. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so eight years is quite a long time to spend in a youth minister position. Uh, what led you to spend so much time there? Uh, I had a the youth minister that I was most influenced by, uh, he was in his position for a long time and is still there. And so I saw the great benefit of um, just staying in one place and seeing multiple generation, generations go through. Uh, and uh, I did did the same to a degree, although not as long as he did. Uh, yeah, I think that's why I just stuck it out. Yeah, awesome. Uh, now, here at Old News, we spend much time thinking about the Old Testament and how that applies Uh, in youth ministry, Uh, what do you think is so important about making sure we involve these texts in our ministry? Do you mean like doing the Old Testament in youth ministry? Um, Yeah, I mean, you think about the Old Testament, uh, it's the the Bible of Jesus, it's the Bible of Paul, uh, it's the Bible of everyone who wrote the New Testament. Uh, So every word that they wrote, they have this stuff ringing in their ears. Um, It was their scriptures. And so I think the, the more we learn about the Old Testament, the more it rings in our ears, the better we uh, can, uh, yes, just hear clearly what, what the New Testament writers have to say about Jesus and the way that they speak about God. I remember this moment when I was reading the Gospel of Mark and, you know, Mark kind of starts in that quirky way compared mm. to the other synoptics. And it's quirky in, in a bunch of ways compared to the other synoptics. And um, just the moment I... I laid it side by side with what Isaiah had to say about the return of God to his people and saw how Mark was trying to communicate that, that Jesus was God's return to his people. Mm -hmm. Now you can read Mark without knowing Isaiah and you'll still know that Jesus is the king. But man, you read it next to to Isaiah and suddenly you see Jesus as, as God's return and the exile coming to an end. And so it just opens up the gospel's uh, you know, it's like you see him in colour for the first time. It's um, yeah, I think that's why the Old Testament is so important to yeah to keep on teaching our people and teaching youth. Yeah, cool. I think uh, we might have to grab you back when we do one of these on Isaiah, because uh, we're not doing Isaiah today. Today we're looking at the book of Esther. Uh, recently, you've been doing a bunch of work on Esther. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, we did. So we we at church just finished preaching through the book of Esther, and I wrote uh, Bible study material on Esther for all of our Bible study groups. And then we spent six weeks preaching through the book. First time I had ever done any work on it. Uh, It was really exciting to do. Yeah, cool. How did your Bible study leaders respond uh, to that at first when you announced it? Yeah, um, people people had mixed responses. Uh, I remember my boss saying he had very, very low expectations of what this series would be like. Um, And he was a bit resistant to doing it. Um, But I... I was sitting with one of my daughters one night and we kind of just read bits of the Bible together and she wanted to do Esther because obviously Esther is the great hero of all young girls. She's the closest thing that they've got to a Disney princess in the Bible and uh, I realized that I didn't have a whole lot to say about it to her. Like I always like to kind of read it with her and read the Bible and you sort of pull out these, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, oh, you know what this means and Kind of, they're very, all very impressed by your Bible knowledge, but I had nothing to say about Esther. So that got me really curious about it, and I thought, you know, what's this doing here? What's it doing in the Bible? Um, and started getting into it, uh, started thinking I'd like to preach it. It had that quirky factor. Uh, we hadn't 
uh, ever touched on it here at St. Luke's as far as I can remember. And um, that, yeah, just led me to get really invested in it and start to wonder how you could preach it and how to, how to draw out uh, how special this book is amongst the uh, other books of the Old Testament. Yeah, awesome. Well, how about we spend some time thinking about how we can preach this book and apply it to our youth kids. Let's get into it. So where do we find ourselves in the book of Esther? All right, we're in Persia and we're in post-exilic times. So the Babylonians have fallen to the Persian Empire and that means the Babylonian exile, which the Jews were suffering, um, has given way to their freedom. Uh, so King Cyrus has come in, wiped out the Persians and has allowed uh, God's people to return home to Jerusalem, although Esther isn't set in Jerusalem. Uh, the book of Esther is set still at the heart of the Persian Empire, a place called Susa. Uh, that's where we are. Awesome. And here we meet kind of four main characters. Uh, what do we think of these guys? What do we think of the king? Okay, so we meet the king. We meet him early and we'll get into him, I guess, when we start to talk a bit more about chapter one. Uh, but yeah, he's our first kind of major character. Um, next uh, person probably worth pointing out is we meet a guy called Mordecai. Um, and Mordecai is, he's a Jewish man, although everything we, we kind of hear about him early makes me a little bit, uh, we, we kind of question his faithfulness to God, I guess, pretty quickly in the book. Uh, Mordecai is one of God's people. He's a Benjamite, we hear, so he's from the, the family of Saul. Um, but his name has is a reference to a Babylonian god, you know, Marduk. And so that's how we meet him. Um, he's still carrying a lot of Persian identity uh, in the early parts of the story and he's a big deal in Persia so we learn that he, he sits at the palace gate which means he's part of that complex of buildings that decides who can go in and see the king and who cannot uh, so he's he's not a small deal Mordecai he's a big guy uh, in terms of the Persian court and he has a cousin called Esther and Esther is also someone he's been raising effectively so she is the she's an orphan Mordecai has been raising her and we we have similar worries about the character of Esther um, she's she has a, a Jewish name which means um, Myrtle but we meet her also with her Persian name Esther which um, is kind of a reference to another Persian goddess uh, so both of them are carrying a bit of a Persian identity. We wonder what they're doing in Persia, why they aren't back in Jerusalem. Um, all those questions hang over their heads. So we don't we don't meet them either as uh, good characters. We don't meet them as bad characters. Um, they're they're really uh, open in terms of um, their morality, uh, and that's to be filled in with the decisions they make through the rest of the chapters. Cool. And then the last guy we find is Haman. Yeah, yeah, we meet Haman, um, and he's convenient, right? So we just know him as a bad guy pretty much straight away. Um, Mordecai's introduced as a Benjamite. Haman's introduced as an Agagite. They are, there is a long-standing religious and racial feud between them uh, that we find all the, way, all the way back into kind of the stories about Saul and how he was charged to wipe out the Agagites or, you know, the um, King Agag, and he doesn't do it. Uh, and so suddenly an Agagite and a Benjamite are in the same place at the same time again and you, you have the tension still existing between these two characters. Yeah, I think it's really helpful uh, to recognise that. And then the other kind of quirky thing that we have going on is there's no mention of uh, the God of Israel. Yeah, so you've got a bunch of characters who we meet and then one character who we think should be there. Um, because this book's in the Bible, we wonder where Yahweh is. Uh, but he's not mentioned. No one prays to him. There's no voices from him. No angels come bearing his message. He he's remarkably absent in the book of Esther. Yeah, cool. Well, with those things in mind, how about we have a look at the text? So in chapters one and two, we find ourselves in Persia under this great king who's in his court, uh, having a great banquet, kind of hanging out and, and drinking with his buddies. Uh, and then 
we have this moment where he calls for his wife Vashti to come so that he can show her off to, to all of his mates and, and display her beauty uh, and she refuses to do that and it's this significant moment where this great powerful king who seems to be uh, the god figure in this world or, or world of Persia uh, unable to control or have power over, over this one person who's refusing him uh, in response to this, he gets uh, really angry, he consults with his uh, wise men and yeah, they essentially decide that they're going to uh, banish and, and get rid of her and, and that she won't hold the position of, of queen anymore. Um, something that I think uh, kind of, I guess this view of this group of men making this decision about this, this woman and as you read through, they're really uh, making it to try and attempt to keep the status quo so that no one else would would fall out of line in this way, uh, something that I found quite shocking to read. And then even more shocking in kind of replacement of her, when they think about who they're going to take to be the next queen, they hold this weird uh, beauty pageant where they've gathered all of these women, they've got them all together, they're being taught uh, by the eunuchs, the ways of the court. And then, yeah, then they kind of all just come before the king and he chooses who he wants. And he, he ends up choosing Esther, who's been put forward by her uh, I guess adopted father, cousin um, Mordecai uh, to take this position uh, that she kind of seems to be yeah I guess controlled by him uh, in this uh, in the narrative uh, and then once she's been chosen we have this awkward moment where Mordecai then uh, appears to overhear a, uh, a plot against the king uh, and in response to that, tells Esther, who then tells the king and, and rescues him. Uh, it's a really interesting kind of soap opera drama that happens in the first two chapters. Uh, when you when you read this, uh, how do you think you take this and then uh, explain it in a youth ministry situation? Yeah. Uh, I would I would probably break up chapters one and two into two separate talks. I think these early chapters of Esther, there's so much information about the characters that's going to be important as you continue through the book that you want to take your time with them. Um, Esther chapter one, I'll spend a lot of time talking uh, about the way the king is set up to be a god. He's set up to be the god of Persia and it's made even more powerful by the fact, as we said before, there's no Yahweh in the story. So he rules from India to Ethiopia. There's a lot made of his 127 provinces. Um, then you get into this description of his palace and it sounds a lot like so the description of Solomon's temple and that's intentional. He's being set up as the god of Persia but that all comes crashing down just by the simple refusal of Vashti. So I think she's a pretty cool character in this and she only appears here in chapter one. Um, but her, her defiance allows you to see that this emperor has no clothes. Um, uh, yeah, his, his power, his godlike power suddenly topples around him. And it teaches us that um, anyone that sets themselves up as God, that will always turn into tyranny in our world and whenever you have an idol in your life some something that you set up as the god of your life you can always expect it to turn you into a slave in the end uh, it, will, it will try and seek power over you so i think there's great opportunities in chapter one to talk about um, idolatry uh, as a way of speaking about sin and um, to warn ourselves against letting anything take the place of god in our world uh, in chapter two, um, yeah, I think you definitely want to take your time there as well because there's some important stuff that happens in chapter two. Uh, there is, I mean, other than the opportunities to reference The Bachelor because you have this kind of what, what looks to be this horrible, um, uh, yeah, beauty pageant. Um, that, the kind of the wealthy in the land, the aristocracy putting forward their daughters uh, with the opportunity to marry the king. Uh, and then Mordecai putting forward um, Esther uh, is a is kind of tragic moment, I think, that he has care of her, but he would put her forward to vie for the king's attention. Um, and it gives us a bit of a taste for his, his character as well, that he would do this to the girl in his charge. Um, and there's one really chilling bit of advice he gives her, which is to keep her identity secret. So do not tell... Do not tell them that you're a Jew. Keep that under under wraps, Esther. And that that would be somewhere I'd spend quite a bit of time speaking to youth about how we can feel like our Christian faith is a liability in lots of situations and that it would be in our best interest to keep it a secret. And the story starts to play out this great, um, yeah, this, this great threat 
overwhelms God's people really stemming from this moment when uh, they have the opportunity to witness, but they choose to keep their identity secret. They think it will help them, but it turns into the reason for, um, yeah, the blade hanging over their necks. Yeah, I think that's really uh, important and helpful. And um, yeah, I think a really, really important situation, that especially I mean, here in Australia, but in, in other countries too, uh, where lots of people are continually, I guess as students at high school feeling the temptation to hide their faith, uh, as something that might get them into trouble or, or that they find themselves in positions where they, they're not uh, receiving those rewards or moving forward uh, into those positions uh, because of their faith. Yeah, definitely. That little quirky moment at the end where Mordecai uncovers a conspiracy against the king kind of pops up there. It's strange. It's sort of out of nowhere. Um, but the real key to that is as it moves into chapter 3. Um, we would expect that Mordecai uncovers a conspiracy, would expect that the king would notice this and promote him, but he doesn't. He promotes this other guy called Haman who pops up in chapter 3 now. But that's, a, that's what I think the function of that section is, um, really is a precursor to chapter 3. Cool. And so as we get into chapter three, uh, we find this character uh, who is going to be a really key and important character kind of come out of nowhere, uh, Haman the Agagite. And he's, he's raised up, he's elevated by the king into a position of great power and authority. Uh, and then we have this strange interaction between him and, and Mordecai as he's kind of walking through uh, the gates of the palace and he sees uh, all these people bowing down before him and Mordecai kind of refuses to do this um, for, for, I mean, uh, a lot of reasons that he may try and, and justify, but it seems to be essentially uh, out of pride. And then Haman responds uh, really angrily, which I, I guess isn't surprising for someone in his position. Uh, but then he, he seeks this really great uh, amount of revenge and decides to take his revenge on uh, Mordecai's people that he's going to, he kind of manipulates the king uh, into putting out a decree uh, that the Jews are going to be uh, killed or wiped out in the land of Persia. And he decides this, uh, what day it's going to be in kind of a really weird way where he casts uh, this dice that they call a, a purr um, to, to decide the day that that's going to happen. 13th day. 13th day of the first month the couriers go out and it's going to be 11 months later. Yeah, so a, a pretty long period of time. Uh, for things to kind of get organized, for the information to get out. Um, but this situation where Mordecai's kind of refused to bow to someone mm. in authority over him, and then there's been all kind of a really huge, and what will end up being the key uh, of the key story of the book, uh, coming coming into play with the, the potential death uh, or destruction of all the Jewish people. Uh, how, do, how do we take this this chapter and, and talk to these kids about it. Yeah, really important to um, kind of nail down what sort of character Mordecai is at this point. So on one hand, you've got this picture of this Jewish man and he is refusing to bow down to this Persian man. And our mind immediately goes to the book of Daniel, I think, which is very similar in lots of ways to the book of Esther. And we remember, you know, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who refused to bow down to the golden idol. Um, in Babylon and we think maybe this is this is kind of a moment like that uh, but I think we want to resist that and there's some key kind of differences going on uh, one is the kind of long-standing religious feud that you can expect is bubbling away in Mordecai's heart uh, we're introduced to Haman the Agagite Mordecai is the Benjamite they have history you know they got beef um, and so there's reason there for Mordecai to have a long-standing hatred against this man. You've also got in the flow of the story, Mordecai, un he unravels the plot, the assassination plot against the king. Haman is immediately elevated to the position of second in charge. So there's reason there for Mordecai to hate this man. Um, and then the next thing is to realize that the Bible actually, there's no, there, there's no reason for, there's no religious reason for 
um, Mordecai to refuse to bow down to Haman. I mean, he makes it out as if that is the reason. He says, you know, I'm not bowing down because I'm a Jew, but God has not issued any instruction to his people to refuse to bow down to other people, especially when those other people are in positions of power. We are to give honor where honor is due. It's sort of mentioned in Proverbs, and it becomes really explicit in the New Testament. Um, Yeah, you realize that God has put people in positions of power. You give them the honor due to them. Uh, There's nothing wrong with the expectation that for a period of time after someone's promotion, you would bow down, you'd give them honor. Uh, So I think it's it's key here to see see a deep sense of pride is what is leading uh, Mordecai to refuse to bow down to this man. Um, Yeah, you want to talk... You've got any ideas how you would apply it? Uh, yeah, I think, um, as we were kind of talking about before, it's just a really bad um, witness and bad bad application of of Mordecai's own faith uh, that he's trying to justify uh, essentially his own pride and anger uh, with with elements of, of the Torah or elements of, of personal uh, kind of glory, especially when you try and compare him to a figure like Daniel. I think what's really interesting is that the direct kind of the direct results of this uh, are, are so far-reaching and dramatic, but ultimately come back to that moment where Mordecai refused to do what was perfectly reasonably expected of him. Yeah, so I think this is a good place to um, to warn the young people in our care about what can happen if they use their faith to justify prideful sin in their life. So I think of. Um, the young guys, the young girls sitting on the internet and the way that they can speak and argue with people and justify it by saying, you know, I'm just sticking up for the scriptures. Um, the way they treat non-Christians, the, their judge, the way they can be judgmental against um, people who don't follow Jesus and speak to them and be condescending to them and hold them in contempt um, and justify it by, by feeling like this is their job as Christian people. And that persecution can... We always expect persecution as Christians, but we feed those flames uh, when uh, we do not um, kind of consistently and with integrity uh, act like Jesus. And when instead we act uh, yeah, other, in ways that he would never, he would never act. So it's a, good, it's a good place to be able to, to warn them against the pride that can bubble up in their heart and particularly yeah, taken on the name of Jesus as, a, um, as an excuse for their, for their sin. Yeah, which is interesting. So I think we do that in so many different elements of our lives. Yep. And it's really easy for us to take our, our faith or, or kind of twist things to justify the way we want to act. And I really like that you jumped onto uh, guys chatting to each other on social media and that it's so easy to, to take on the position of, of the, I'm the kind of crusader uh, who's looking after and looking out for the faith when, mm. when really I'm just being aggressive and unkind <laughs> uh, just, to people. Just a jerk. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think I would spend some time on is there's a lot of effort, a, a lot of um, detail put into the dates here. So the dice is rolled um, and then uh, we hear when it when the couriers go out, we hear the date on which um, this genocide of the Jewish people is going to take place. And it's, it's kind of repeated. They want us to really feel those dates. And I think um, uh, I think the reason is the date that the couriers go out is is the eve of Passover. So you need to imagine people sitting down for the Passover meal when they uh, remember God saving them from Egypt, this kind of really critical, the moment uh, of the formation of Jewish identity that God saves us. And as they sit down to have this meal, they hear that they have 11 months to live. And to imagine them speaking about God's salvation in Egypt, knowing that uh, this, this genocide is going to happen, that they... Um, live under a death sentence now, and would they be able to say, sing the hymns of Passover and say the prayers of of Passover, and um, yeah, would they be able to do that and still trust them with the edict that has been handed down? And then also to wonder what the next eleven months of their life would be like. You know, what would we do if we knew that uh, in eleven months' time our faith in Jesus? would mean our certain death? Would we spend those 11 months praying, drawing closer to Jesus, kind of preparing ourselves for that day? Or would we spend 11 months slowly deconverting, uh, knowing that we would save our skin in the process? Um, So I think that is a really worthwhile question to put to people, put to young people who are hearing this, um, to really get them to count the cost, you know, 
um, yeah, would I, um, yeah, would I, would I deconvert during those 11 months just to live out my earthly existence or would I put uh, my full hope in Jesus for all of eternity? Yeah, three weeks into a talk series and we've had a pretty heavy, deep moment, um, but a, a really important one. I think it's really interesting the way that we, you drew that out and, and think about uh, just the, yeah, when the rubber hits the road, uh, where are we going to stand? And, and when, when we put that to our youth kids, I think it's a really challenging uh, moment, but I think I'm very, really grateful for chapter four mm. uh, coming straight after we kind of start to dwell on that stuff. Uh, and it's a moment when Esther, whether we see her as being a, a flawed character or a character with heaps of, uh, of faults, uh, different things that are going on, um, she kind of gets to this point where she decides uh, in response to what's going on and after a conversation with Mordecai that she's going to go to the king and reveal her identity as part of uh, explaining what's going on and, and trying to thwart this plan. Um, yeah, which I guess is, is significant because of the way in which uh, if she can't go before the king without being called and that's yep. a, a punishable by death situation, but she sees this risk, um, which is essentially, I guess, the central idea of, of chapter four, where she this plan is going to come at great risk to her. And she has this moment where she says, uh, of great faith, where she says, if I perish, I perish, but this is something that we've got to do. And it kind of ties in with, with Mordecai f- uh, feeling the same way. Yeah, chapter four. Um, the way that I read the book, I really do see this as the sort of redemptive chapter for both Mordecai and Esther. As flawed as they are in the early chapters of the book, um, they have this great moment of repentance and returning to God's covenant people, really um, aligning themselves with God's covenant people. Um, and this is where you'll find the classic kind of uh, lines in Esther, you know, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to go ahead and do what's right anyway. Uh, yeah, should we talk about application? Yeah, I think it's a really good moment um, where we see Esther find kind of her own independent identity. That This seems to be a decision that she's made, that she's going to do something and she's going to take this risk, not because Mordecai is uh, making her do it like he he did with her hiding her identity, um, but that she, now she's choosing not to be silent and not to be uh, treated as a pawn anymore, um, but that she's going to do this, she's going to save the people by taking this this immense risk and I think this is a good uh, image after coming off the back of chapter three to be able to present to you. Yeah, I mean Esther has throughout the book so far just been the pawn on the kind of chessboard of powerful men around her. Uh, so she's the, the trophy wife of the king and uh, she does whatever Mordecai tells her to do even when what he tells her to do is compromise her faith, compromise her identity. But here, um, we should talk about Mordecai because he becomes a bit of a hero here as well. But certainly Esther, when she makes her decision to return to God's covenant people, uh, to repent and fast, which is sort of has the is the image of sorrow and mm. uh, making and sort of dying and being returned to life at the end of the fast. Uh, yeah, she she becomes a fully orbed character. Now suddenly she's making the calls on her life. She's ordering various people around. It's like in returning to God and in submission to God, she finds who she finds her own identity and she becomes the sort of hero that we've been waiting for her to become in the book. But Mordecai, we we can't leave him, yeah, leave him out of the picture because he has his moment of repentance as well, covering himself with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, signs of um, deep sadness and grieving about where um, he has brought God's people to. And he has this line that he says to to Esther where he says, you know, if you don't return to God's covenant people, if you don't do this thing, uh, salvation will arise from another quarter. Mm-hmm. And that's a real expression of faith where Mordecai just says, like, I know that it doesn't appear that we're going to be saved from this, but I promise you we will. Like God will keep his promises to us. So you can return to God's people in the face of this threat and find salvation, uh, or you can choose not to, but I promise with God there's life and without God there's not. That's that's kind of the, his statement of faith. And it's that, at that moment is what um, prompts Esther to do the same, to return to God's people. Yeah, and I think for me this is a really key moment where we can really relate to the situation um, that, of, of Mordecai's expression of faith uh, in the sense that, that God is, is absent mm. in, this, in this part of the Bible and, and we don't have 
kind of the conversations between the hero of the story and God going yeah. on all the time. Um, but we have someone who's living in a place where he's not speaking directly to God, um, similar to us now, kind of living living in a world where it seems uh, that God isn't necessarily close all the time. Yeah, he's making this decision of faith mm. and making this... It, it seems to me a pretty surreal moment of, of confidence. Yeah, and you can under, imagine Mordecai on the other side of celebrating Passover, just saying, okay, God has done this in the past and I don't hear him speaking to me out of burning bushes, but that doesn't matter. What he has done and what he has promised, I can trust. And we live in a very similar situation, you know, what, what, what God has done in Christ, what he has promised in Christ, although we, we may not, uh, receive visions and um, voices from heaven we still have that and that's where our faith faith rests yeah cool well i think the um yeah the the more we kind of expand on that and on chapter four i think the harder i'd find it to do a short youth talk on it <laughs> as i just get really excited um but yeah how about we jump in and, and start thinking about uh kind of chapter five and chapter six this great reversal yeah that happens this really key moment in the book in in chapter six as mm. things start to pivot um, that Esther starts to put into action her plan. She has this first banquet uh, and kind of says, oh, I've got a secret that I'm going to tell you guys and another banquet after this. Yeah. Um, and, and in response, kind of Haman leaves. And this interesting interaction between Haman's experience at this moment and the king's dream that's happening almost at the same time mm. that Haman sees Mordecai gets really angry commands that there's going to be that he wants there to be a stake in the ground that Mordecai is going to be impaled uh, on this stake and while his scheme and plan is happening the king uh, is reading uh, the the chronicles uh, of, of his own reign because he can't sleep yep. and at the same time hears about uh, the acts of Mordecai and then that kind of forgotten act at the start of the book where yep. he saves the king's life uh, is brought forward. And then there's this really awkward moment where Haman comes to the king, thinks that he's the one that's about to be praised. And so gives all these different directions of things that should happen to someone who's done great things for the king. And, and Haman ends up having to personally carry out the elevation of Mordecai. Uh, yeah. Um, a couple of chapters full of incredible reversals of fortune. Um, I would the one thing I'd, I wouldn't want to get lost in all of these in all of the things that happen in these chapters is the way that Esther first goes to the king. So I think lots of the depictions of Esther, I mean there's there's a lot of people who really want her to be this this kind of Disney princess character, beautiful and um, she's just flawless from beginning to end, which which is not how I read the book at all. but particularly here, she doesn't go to the king as that beautiful woman who first drew the king's attention. Uh, she goes to the king at her lowest point after days of fasting. Uh, she, she goes in not um, kind of, uh, yeah, wrapped up in, in beauty and majesty. Um, she doesn't go to him hoping to win him over by an, through an image of glory. She goes to him at her lowest point after fasting um, and sort of pleads for his, um, yeah, her, his, his uh, attention here. Um, and I think there's a kind of powerful Christological imagery there um, for the church to, to remember that um, the salvation that's brought about by Jesus wasn't through kind of the image of earthly glory, um, but it was through him uh, in his death uh, that that sins are forgiven, that new birth and salvation springs forth, and the same goes with the church. That it's um, in the face of persecution, it's not going to be overcome by us growing in power and strength and earthly majesty. It's going to be uh, overcome as we imitate Christ and uh, as we suffer faithfully. Um, so there's some really good stuff that can be spoken about there, and just uh, Esther as a type of Christ uh, in this section. You want to come back me on that? Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful, um, particularly uh, in just seeing this this individual ex expression of faith uh, and, and courage. Uh, that's really helpful. And uh, what I find also interesting is that you you think that if we're going to preach this book really well, um, we're going to hold off on a particular theme. Uh, yeah, this point. that's right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the whole book, I think the the center of it is chapter six. Um, and that means that that's where you see God's providential hand at work. So the absent God 
through all of the book that we've wondered, is he at work in the Persian court? Does he care about um, his people who are scattered throughout Persia, his people who haven't returned to Jerusalem? Uh, we don't hear his voice, no one prays, no angels sent. Um, but suddenly in chapter 6, you see that he has been at work the whole time and continues to be at work and is keeping his promises to his people. And he doesn't need to do this in any obvious way for it to be true. Uh, and if one of the keys to preaching this book, if you're going to do it as a series, kind of chapter by chapter, you want to hold off the, um, the theology of providence until now. Um, you don't want to preach it week after week, although you could because it's there throughout the book. But you want to leave certain things hanging like why wasn't Mordecai promoted? Well, it suddenly makes sense now. Um, so all of these little bits and pieces throughout the book. Uh, yeah, now is the time to really speak about providence because we see it so much in chapter six. And I mean, just that first verse, this idea that the king couldn't sleep. That is such a surprise in this book because... I mean, the king has just had no trouble drinking himself to sleep every other night <laughs> throughout this book, right? And you also see him construct this world where nothing would interrupt his slumber. Like he kind of contracts out all his decisions to the wise eunuchs around him. Uh, there's this moment where um, Mordecai isn't allowed into the palace because he's dressed in sackcloth. That is, the king doesn't let anyone mourning into his palace. He's really created this fortress of solitude where um, the party never stops. And yet on this night, he can't sleep all of a sudden. This, this one night between the two banquets that Esther plans. Um, the idea that a king can't sleep kind of echoes in our ears. We know that you know Pharaoh couldn't sleep and we, we remember that Nebuchadnezzar not being able to sleep and those are the nights when God rises up and he works for the salvation of his people and suddenly this king can't sleep and we're automatically expecting that God's going to go to work and he does. Yeah, wicked. I think that's really great and, and kind of brings us uh, into the second half of the book where the fortunes of Haman uh, seem to turn. So chapter 7. I love this chapter. I think mainly because of the irony uh, that comes about. We have Esther revealing her identity as a Jew. We have her publicly, like potentially in front of Haman, uh, declaring his crime and, and what he's done. And the king in this kind of, I mean, classic, his style, a bit of a drunken rage, uh, has him executed and impaled on the stake that he had prepared for Mordecai's execution. Yeah, it's a beautiful, ironic moment. And I think while um, it it's kind of seems like a small group of events, it's one that I really want to stop and, and think about in, the, in this moment where Haman's own plans essentially are sim symbolically have become the stake that he himself is destroyed by. And it seems like a, a couple of things. It seems like a comfort mm -hmm. and also a warning, uh, a comfort in that we can uh, reassure uh, our youth and reassure ourselves that evil in the world uh, is not allowed will, or will not be allowed ultimately to to reign forever and that the plans of those who do evil uh, will not find eternal success um, but also there's a whole bunch of warnings for us yeah uh, uh, the way that um, so in the in the book we see Haman's uh, his evil is really given a lot of space to grow um, it's like the fan the, the flames of his hatred the flames of his um, anger against the Jewish people uh, are given kind of oxygen. And we wonder what God is doing through all of this. And again, it's in these chapters where God's providential hand, him working for the good of his people, is seen. And um, it's when Haman's pride uh, reaches its full measure, you know, the height of it. And when his fury and his anger reaches full measure and he's set up a pole to, to execute this man Mordecai, uh, that's the moment when he effectively, he writes... He authors his own judgment, um, thinking that he was the man that was going to get honoured. He outlines uh, word for word how Mordecai is going to be vindicated and honoured in his place. And the poll that he set up for Mordecai's execution, he ends up being the man impaled upon it. And it's a reminder that evil evil writes its own judgment often. we don't. Uh, God doesn't need to send lightning bolts down from the sky. Evil will eventually become a judgment upon itself and us for entertaining it. Uh, and now I think that's a good warning for us to hear. 
uh, because of the secret sins that we might give oxygen to their, their flames uh, you know evil being a fire that kind of burns away and uh, we can fan those flames and think that no bad will come of it but we can be sure that uh, the evil itself will write its own judgment um, yeah you, you reap what you sow when you give um, give oxygen to the flames of evil for sure So we come to the the final section of the book that we kind of decided we we preach the the full three chapters uh, in youth in one go. Um, so we we have this moment where the decree is now understood to be a problem, but because of some Persian law, they can't overturn a king's <laughs> decree. Uh, so instead, they make this counter decree uh, to essentially just giving the Jews permission to defend themselves. Yeah, yeah, they can wage a defensive war. It's a very balanced kind of eye for an eye um, Old Testament uh, trope there that, you know, what what is being done to you, you can do back to others. And then in response, we have this celebration and elevation of Mordecai to the position essentially that Haman was in and really the, the position that he deserved to be in from the start yeah. or maybe should have yep. been elevated to. Uh, and then we, we have this kind of battle moment where the Jews defeat their enemies. Um, they, they get the decree extended so that they can continue to defend themselves. Yes, to ask for a special permission to keep on killing. And then this celebration occurs and they, they establish the, the annual feast of, of Purim, uh, playing off the, the dye pur that was used at, at the start to celebrate this, this time when uh, the Jews have essentially been delivered again and, and Mordecai is truly... Uh, elevated uh, to this position and it's a really uh, I guess good news story end for the for the book to to take um, but also just really interesting for us to think about and as you kind of once you've finished uh, trying to get youth to keep attention for three chapters being read out <laughs> aloud um, well what kind of angle do you think you take with it uh, there's there's all sorts of stuff to to speak about in these chapters uh, one is um, seeing God as the God who can just create impossible reversals of fortune. Just, you know, fortune being a strange word where he's in control of everything. But God is the God that will do can do the impossible, what we think is impossible. Um, and, uh, yeah, we see, we see all sorts of things overturn and reverse. You know, the Mordecai who is in sackcloth is now elevated and he's wearing the robe and he's in power. And uh, God's people who um, were going to be uh, murdered, wiped out, suddenly have um, this legal right to defend themselves against their attackers um, and are victorious as God's people so often are when God is fighting on their side. Um, but there's some other interesting little thoughts about um, just witness and evangelism throughout these chapters as well that I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to pass up. Now you get this picture of... Um, of many people converting to Judaism here. Um, and it's only on the other side of persecution that that happens. So God's people are persecuted. And in this book, they stand faithfully for God in the midst of that persecution. And suddenly people are turning to that God in worship. And that's the same pattern you see later in the book of Revelation. That in the book of Revelation, the first time that people lift, uh, the, the kind of nations lift their voice and worship is on the other side of God's people being persecuted and then being faithful in persecution. Uh, and that makes sense as the body of Christ kind of fills up the sufferings of Christ. And we can expect that it's only as we imitate him and are faithful in the midst of persecution uh, that God will, by his spirit, turn people's hearts, turn the nation's hearts to him. So I think there's some interesting theology that is there in sort of embryonic form that you see spread out through the rest of the scriptures. I also really love that the picture there of um, the feasting that the Jewish people do uh, when they hear that um, they're going to be able to defend themselves. Uh, and you have this, this idea of the different ways that we can respond to persecution when it comes. You know, there is the opportunity just to, to fight. You know, we can fight it or we can flee from it, do everything we can to avoid it. Uh, but the response of God's people in these final chapters is, first of all, to feast. And the people that could have easily have been their enemies 
um, are allowed to join the feast, are allowed to come and join it. And I think that's a great picture of what God's people can do in the midst of persecution as well is to, uh, is to feast, whether that's the symbolic feast of the Lord's Supper, keep on celebrating that meal together, trusting in Jesus or, you know, opening our homes in hospitality and loving our enemies. Uh, there's always the opportunity to feast in the midst of, pers- of persecution as an act of witness to the hope we have in Jesus. Yeah, and I think it's a really great way for the series to end, considering uh, that we have start kind of started the series with these characters who are quick to deny their identity as the people of God, mm. and at, by the end of the book, that is the most celebrated aspect of, of who they are. Yeah, witness or perish was a way that I heard this book, the theme of this book described, and that's that's one of them, I reckon, for sure. Witness or perish, or how to live with faith among amongst the faithless, you know. Um, the, the courage of these people and they I think it's their courage that we should aspire to in, in as we read their characters and wonder are they models for us or not certainly their courage their courage from chapter four onwards is something to aspire to yeah and so I think we find ourselves kind of at the end of a neat little uh, a book who that has really taught us and, and shown us a whole bunch of things uh, about how we how we go about being followers uh, of God and being His people, mm. um, but I think we're also left with a whole bunch of uncomfortable elements that we might come across potentially throughout the series that youth kids might ask us yep. about. So I thought we could chat uh, about a few of those. Um, yeah, the first one is kind of this constant disobeying of the Torah and also the drunkenness that kind of comes with the characters of Esther and Mordecai. Yeah, um, definitely undermining the Disney princess view. Uh, of Esther, that she's constantly got a drink in her hand. Mm. Um, yeah, how, how do we kind of deal with that? Um, I think that all of those elements are only a problem if you're trying to set Esther up as this perfect character. And there is the tendency, I think, for some people to really want to do that, to think if, there's, if someone is prominent in the scriptures, they have to be perfect. But that's not true of, of almost any of the characters that we encounter throughout the Bible. The great King David, terribly flawed, you know, here as well, Esther. Um, I think, yeah, it, you, you look at the way that this book compares with the book of Daniel. And he is very a very polished character, Daniel. Um, and he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's court and he refuses to touch the food. You know, he sets up this test um, for, yeah, to see w- what his role is within um, the Babylonian Empire. And he won't eat. Uh, anything that Nebuchadnezzar gives him, uh, no wine, refuses the wine. And then you see Esther, who does the absolute opposite. She goes into the court desperate to please. She eats what she is given. She engages in the parties. That's that's important to not pretend that away. She's, she's not this perfect character. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it almost makes her more relatable as a character too. Fantastically you know, when we, relatable. We yeah. look at her and see, and her and, and Mordecai too, in, in all of his flaws seeing them uh, turn to God and show deep faith uh, in spite of those, those flaws that they have. They're, they're a lot, I find it a lot easier to see myself uh, in the shoes of Mordecai than I do in the shoes of Daniel. Yeah, or to hope that, yeah. It's, hard, it's very hard to hope to be like Daniel because he's mm. so perfect. But, you know, you could, you could maybe be a Mordecai, someone who knows his failures, but who, um, yeah, is courageous. At, you know, that's what we aspire to nonetheless. But the drunkenness, I think the drunkenness is worth being seen, um, particularly through the eyes of Proverbs. And it's a way of pointing out the foolishness of the king. Um, so he, he's the king is the main guy that is is always attached to the drinking of wine and, and drunkenness. And um, when you look at the book of Proverbs written by Solomon, written to his son, it really is a book for kings in training, I guess, as much as it is a book for all of us. Uh, but yeah, that book has many warnings about those who you know stare longingly at wine and are up chasing drink early, and um, it's just not it's not for wise kings to live like that. And so I think the, the the constant references to wine and being drunk in the book of Esther are another way of explaining the foolishness of this great Persian king. Yeah, cool. And then the last thing that I think uh, is worth mentioning. Uh, is that this book uh, and Esther is as well is uh, criticised uh, for the the great massacre essentially yeah. that happens at the end of the enemies of the Jews. Yep. Um, it wouldn't it would make a lot of sense that people, uh, particularly our youth kids, would pick up on that that's occurring and and pick up on on Esther's involvement. Mm. Uh, how do how do we deal with that? 
Yes, yeah, I mean, it's not the only place you're going to have to deal with this. I mean, if you want to read the Old Testament, you're going to have to be prepared for God to extend his judgment via his people and his judgment upon sin is death. And he will do that when sins reach their full measure. Um, and he will use his people, at least he used his people in the Old Testament to do that. And uh, we can't pretend that away. It is there. Um, but um, if, you're, if you're going to teach youth the old testament it would be great to get a really good apology for that in, in ready to go and a way of explaining that and speaking about it uh, certainly here in the book of esther um, this is an extension of uh, god's um, yeah god's uh, decision to destroy the amalekites and their king agag um, and the the different bits and pieces of this book are kind of the way that that storyline wraps up for the old testament so finally god's judgment has come to an end um, here with the death of Haman and his family uh, and it's yeah it's pretty hard for us to encounter and read there's bits and pieces in there that sort of take the harsh edge off it to remember that this is by definition a defensive war uh, so the rule wasn't that, that the Jewish people could go out and slaughter whoever they wanted they could defend themselves um, and so we see that when people come to kill them they are they are allowed to defend themselves against those people um, and then that also makes us think when Esther asks for a second day for this, um, this rule to be applied, um, we must expect that that means that people are still trying to kill the Jews. Um, and she um, asks for that extension so that the murderers can be, um, can be uh, killed. Yeah, cool. And I think that's really helpful, um, because, mainly because just reading these things at surface level can often be really uh, unhelpful and probably just really emphasises the... Uh, importance of preparation uh, behind yeah. dealing with these parts of the Bible and also being wise in how you, you use them with your youth. But I think overall, this is a really helpful uh, story from start to finish as we kind of see the the tense rise and dramatic climax uh, of how God, while absent, still manages to save his people. Um, yeah, I thought it'd be helpful. Brett, if you would have the last word, uh, what do you think is the uh, best thing about teaching this book in youth ministry? I think at the, at the center of the book, the heart of the book, is um, the reminder that uh, God is working for the good of those who love him. You know, God's providential hand is at work. And that is so powerful in the book of Esther because of his seeming absence. And that is very similar to how lots of people feel um, their, their kind of lives play out that they read the scriptures, they read the Old Testament and they see the moments where God tears seas apart and speaks from the burning bush and um, visitations of angels and dreams where he conveys messages and all these moments where he seems very close, very immediate. Um, and yet they think, well, that's not, that's not exactly what my life plays out like. And so we've, we, the atmosphere that's created in the book of Esther is very similar to the, the time and place that we might find ourselves, yet this book assures us that although it may not always be obvious, God is always at work, as Romans says, for the good of those who love him, and we can rest in that. I think that's at the heart of the book, and I think that's why the book's so, so important for us to read. This has been a presentation from Old News Bible. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at oldnewsbible at gmail.com. All quotes from the Bible were taken from the New International Version 2011 and the music is Amber by Drake Stafford.